Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. The sermon I'm going to preach on this morning is called The Way, part number two. And I would ask the church to please stand and turn to Psalm number one as we will pray and then read the word of God. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant, so many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Amen. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 2, the NASB says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Please be seated. So, beloved, last time in the way, part number one, we answered three questions. We answered what practical advice has God given us for everyday life? We answered how can you become blessed? And we answered, how can you be sure that you are being formed by Christ? Today, we're going to answer two questions. The first question, what is the secret to prayer that transforms lives? The second question we're going to answer is, what is the key to spiritual growth? What is the secret to prayer that transforms lives? What is the key to spiritual growth? Now let's dive right in. What is the secret to prayer that transforms lives? What is the secret to prayer that transforms institutions? What is the secret to prayer that transforms situations? Answer, the secret to prayer that transforms lives is meditation on the word of God. And I would write that down. So the secret to prayer that transforms lives is meditation on the word of God. So what is it? What is meditation? What are we talking about? In our theme verse, it says, blessed is the man who meditates day and night on the law of God. That person will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and whatever he does, he prospers. Psalm 19.14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 43.9 says, My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. Joshua 1.8 says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So clearly, meditation is a theme 
running a course through the scriptures. So what does it mean? Meditation comes from a Hebrew root, which means to mutter or to read in an undertone. Meditation means you take a verse of scripture or a series of scripture or a chapter and you first read the verses silently. You read it once, you read it twice, you read it three times. And then in a low undertone or a murmuring, uh, very subtle way of speaking, you recite the verses to yourself. So you look at the words, you read the, ver the words, and then you hear yourself actually reciting the words. And if for nothing else, Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Where does it say that hearing has to come from someone else? When you are meditating on the word of God, you are in essence preaching to yourself. And your ears pick up and hear the word of God. Now let's be clear. Meditation means you are alert, you are awake, and you are oriented, which means you had a good night's sleep. You brushed your teeth, you had your coffee, you had a good breakfast, and you sit down with the Word of God, and you are ready to go. All your senses are engaged. You read, you speak, and then you hear. Let me give you an example. Psalm 8 says, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou, God, art mindful of him? This is how we meditate on that verse. You first read it once, twice, three times, then you recite it. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, now as we recite it to ourselves, we reflect and we ponder, what does this mean? What are the scriptures saying? When I consider thy heavens, God's heavens, the work of thy fingers, which means God is so majestic, God is so awe-inspiring, when he doodles in space, the heavens is what results. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, which means God ordained the moon to be where it is, he ordained the millions upon millions of millions of stars to be exactly where they are. And if God is so powerful, he can do that. How does that compel us to think about how he can take care of us here and now? When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars that, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Which means in spite of all of that, God has so much power, so much skill. He is so sovereign. He can do all of that. And he is still mindful of you. That is an example of how we meditate on the word of God, which is the secret to prayer that transforms lives. And if for nothing else, meditation is going to change how you see God because you're going to learn more about him. You're going to see how God relates to you in the world, and you're going to see how you relate to others. It's going to do something called imprinting. In medical science, there's this idea where if you do something over and over and over again, it's actually going to form neuron, neuronal connections in your brain. Nerves are going to start talking to one another. 
You may meditate and feel nothing. You may get up and not think the world is any different, but the verse you just meditated on is now imprinted on your brain. So when you pray a month from now, when you speak to someone who's hurting a year from now, that verse is gonna come out. You're not even gonna know where it came from because it's been imprinted on your brain. Now let's make sure we're very clear about something. Meditation is biblical. The word is right there in the Psalms. But biblical meditation has absolutely nothing to do with Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation is about sensory deprivation. It says you go to a quiet, peaceful, tranquil place. Your heart rate slows down. Your breathing rate slows down. And it says, empty your mind. And as you've been told many times in this church before, if someone ever asks you to empty your mind, the next question you ask is, what is going to fill it? Biblical meditation is sensory overload. You're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting God's word. You're thinking about it. You're chewing on it. You're meditating on it. You are alert, awake, and oriented, and your eyes and mind are wide open because biblical meditation is not Eastern meditation. Biblical meditation is not just reading the Bible. Biblical meditation is not just listening to a sermon, because let's keep it real. You have been to sermons where you have been uh, sound asleep with your eyes wide open. You have read the Bible and read 10 verses and have no idea what you just read, because your mind is somewhere else. Biblical meditation is active You're awake, you are alert, and you make the purposeful intent to say, this is not a game, this is the word of God, and I'm going to meditate on it. So biblical meditation is very active. Martin Luther, the great reformer said, biblical meditation is like going up to a tree that's a promise of a scripture verse, and standing at the base of the tree and shaking it, over and over and over again till every fruit falls off the branches for you to take hold of and eat. Biblical meditation means unitasking, not multitasking. We live in a world where everyone is multitasking. People are doing multiple things at one time. Biblical meditation means unitasking. It means purposely focusing your mind and your attention to do one thing, meditate on the Word of God. Because information is something which can be consumed. We live in the information age where information is everywhere, but no one is getting smarter. Because information is something that you can rapidly consume. When you're building wisdom, Proverbs says, wisdom is a house that is built. When you meditate, you're now building wisdom. It's something which is formed, it's shaped, it requires effort and purpose. Because biblical meditation is not, it's not multitasking, it's unitasking. You have to have the posture and the purposeful intent to say, I'm going to build an understanding of God's word. Biblical meditation is also day and night. This obviously doesn't mean you wake up in the morning and meditate for for every minute that you're awake. That would make life impossible. 
This is a figurative expression, which means you bring God's word back into the forefront. So if it means taking five minutes out of your day, or five minutes five times a day, or five minutes ten times a day, you create the mental space to say, I'm going to bring God's word back into the mental forefront. So what is the secret to prayer that transforms lives? And the answer is meditation on the word of God. Now turn to your neighbor and ask them, what are you meditating on? So I said the secret to prayer that transforms lives is meditation on the word of God. So what does that mean exactly? Meditation is the preparation that we make before we enter into the presence of God with prayer. Jesus Christ never played games. God is not a game. Our prayer life is not a game. Our prayer life is us entering into the presence of a holy and just God and communicating with him in an intimate fashion. Why would we ever enter into the presence of God unprepared? Why would we ever go about prayer any old way? If you were about to meet the president, if you were about to meet the Queen of England, you would prepare. You would know how to act, what to say, how to dress, what to do. So why would we ever enter into the presence of God with prayer any old way? Because if we do enter any old way, we're going to get any old results. And how meditation changes that, it prepares you to enter into the presence of God. Meditation on the word of God is pre-prayer. It's the preparation you make before you communicate with God. So why would we ever go into the Lord's presence unprepared, without an idea of what we're going to say, how we're going to say it, or when we're going to say it. And that's exactly what the Psalms are, where our theme verse comes from. So if you don't know, you can prepare with the word-for-word verbatim prayer filled in the entire book of Psalms. So let me ask the church this. When you've ever sat down to pray, have you ever had no desire to pray at all? Have you ever just couldn't bother? Have you ever felt as if you don't know what to say? After a minute, you recite the Lord's Prayer. Now you don't know, you're, you're lost. You say, okay, God, give shrug your shoulders, go eat breakfast. Have you ever found yourself not knowing what, you, what words to use? You kind of take a break every time you take a sentence because your mind locks up. You have no idea what words to use to communicate to God. And the reason why that happens is because your prayer engine is cold. Meditation warms the prayer engine. We all live in New York, so we know fully well in the wintertime when it's been 10 degrees uh, Fahrenheit the entire night and the car is cold, it's frigid, and you walk in that car, the seat is cold, your butt, it just feels uncomfortable. 
You put your hand on the steering wheel, it's ice cold. You breathe out, you can see the mist because the air is frigid. You can't see anything in the mirrors because there's ice. If you try to start the car up, it may not even start because the engine is cold. And if you try to drive away with that car immediately, what happens? It's not gonna run properly because it's not at the appropriate operating temperature. The engine is cold. But if you give yourself 20 or 25 minutes and you turn that engine on and you put the seat warmers on and you put it up to 85 degrees and you let it sit, then you come back 30 minutes later and now the seat is nice and warm, it feels good. The temperature inside the cabin is now 85 degrees. You walked in with a heavy winter coat, now you're in you know, shorts and a t-shirt because it's nice and cozy. Now your view in the car is clear because all of the ice is melted. And the engine is now warm because you properly warmed it up. And now it runs smooth. You drive off and the engine responds appropriately because it's been properly geared. It's been properly primed. It's been properly warmed up. So when the engine is warm, the vehicle is going to move better. And this is what meditation does. It warms up the prayer engine. It revs that engine up and takes it from an engine which is being cold and at an inappropriate operating temperature to one that is optimal. And how does meditation do that? Meditation warms the prayer engine with language. And I would highly advise you write the following sentence down. How does meditation warm the prayer engine? Language. God speaks to us. We meditate on his words. And then we use that language to respond to him in prayer. One more time. God speaks to us. We meditate on his words, and then we use that language to respond to him in prayer. People don't know how to pray because they have a deficiency of language. They don't know how to speak to a king of kings. Because God is God. Of course you wouldn't know how to speak to him. Meditation on the word of God equips you with language and gives you words you would never think of yourself. In the example I just illustrated, if you were going to meet the Queen of England, someone would tell you how to act. Someone would tell you how to dress. Someone would tell you the things to say and the things not to say. And this is what meditation does. It gives us the language that has been given to us by a holy God that we now reflect back to God himself. And because meditation gets us more familiar with God's language, we also become more familiar with God himself. Because we're not only listening and reading to and meditating on God's words, those words are a reflection of him. 
So now we know who we're praying to. Now we know what his principles are, what his ethics are, what our morals are. And now we have a very clear idea of who we're praying to, what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. Let me make this all very, very plain. My son Nigel is now three years old. And as a three-year-old, he throws tantrums. So around when he turned two, if you take his iPad away, throws a tantrum. It's time to go to bed, Nigel, throws a tantrum. It's time to leave the playground, Nigel, throws a tantrum. And I began using a specific type of language to speak to him. I would say, Nigel, whenever we throw a tantrum, stop whining. And the first couple of months, he never really got it. He would continue in his tantrum. But then as the weeks passed by, he would throw more tantrums. Now I would say, Nigel, stop whining. And then he would stop. And then it reached a point after a while where he would throw a tantrum, and I wouldn't even say it anymore. I would say, Nigel, what is Daddy about to say? And he would look down, and he would say, stop whining. <laughs> and see, me as a natural father, it delighted me to see my son using the language I used and gave to him. And he reflected it back to me. Because that tells me that my son, although he's three, he's delighting in my words. He's delighting in my instruction. He's saying, you know what, Daddy? You seem to have this life thing kind of figured out a little bit. So I'm going to reflect back because I know if I try to fight against you, I'm going to lose. So it delights me as a father to see my son using my language. And now because he's using my language back at me, I delight in him more. Now I'm more responsive to him. I don't want to be mean to him. I want to be caring and loving and nurturing. So if he asks me for something, I'm going to say, sure, Nigel, why not? Because you're using my language. Now, if I, as a simple, specked, finite father, delight when I see my son use my language back at me, what do we think is going to happen when God sees us meditating on, chewing on, digesting his language, and we delight in it. And then we say, Daddy, God, Abba, Father, here is your language back at you. Meditation opens the ear of God because God sees what we're doing and he's more responsive to his child who now delights in his language and therefore makes God more receptive to us because the secret to prayer that transforms lives is meditation on the word of God. And before I leave this point alone, if you are in a position in your life where you are having prayer problems, where things seem to have now gotten deadlocked, 
you have to ask yourself three questions. The first is, do you actually know God? Do you know the person that the words you're meditating on talks about? The second is, what language are you speaking when you speak to God? Are you using his language or are you using yours? And the third is, what do you meditate on? Look at your day from when you get up to when you go to bed. What is the one thing that you meditate on, that you chew on and you digest the most? And is it God's word? Because the secret to prayer that transforms lives is meditation on the word of God. Second question. What is the key to spiritual growth? What is the key to spiritual growth? And once again, please write this down. The key to spiritual growth is to know and obey the truth, which is the revealed will and word of God. The key to spiritual growth is to know and obey the truth, which is the revealed will and word of God. And how do you know what the truth is? You meditate on the word of God. Spiritual growth in theology, we have this fancy word. It's called sanctification. It refers to progressive purification or your progress in holiness throughout the course of your Christian life. So the key to spiritual growth is the truth of God's word, which means the opposite is also true. If the key to growth is God's truth, then the thing that's going to halt your growth is non-truth. The Bible is the only source of sanctifying truth. You're not going to find sanctifying truth in any other area of life. And of course, there are other sources of truth. When I was in medical school, I never learned how to take someone's appendix out by opening up Leviticus. Truth exists elsewhere, but we're talking about ultimate truth. Truth with a capital T, what Alvin Platinga calls true truth. And there's only one source of true truth or truth that allows you to grow in your sanctification, and that is in the Word of God. There is never, ever any sanctifying power in human wisdom. There's never, ever any sanctifying power in human intuition, insight, or experience. The key to spiritual growth is the true truth found in God's Word. Now... We know now what the key to spiritual growth is. So how do you know that you're growing? You know that you're growing based upon the instructions the the Apostle John tells us in the book 1 John. So let's set this up. So I'd ask everyone to turn their Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And as you're turning, I'm going to give you some context. Who wrote this book was the Apostle John. He was a disciple of Jesus. He followed him during his earthly ministry. He was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he was an apostle, meaning he was given a special commission 
to go out into the world and was a founding father of the Christian church. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, this is part of what's called a general epistle, meaning it's a letter being sent out to churches of the ancient world. It's a letter that's meant to encourage, to exhort, to help to grow the church at the time. So he's speaking to a church family. He's speaking to a church audience. So how do we know that we're growing? The Apostle John is going to tell us. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So the key to spiritual growth is the truth of God's word. How do we know that we are growing? John tells us because he gives us three different categories of spiritual growth. In the church family, he speaks to little children, he speaks to young men, and he speaks to fathers. The Greek word for little children is technion, which doesn't mean a literal little child. It's a figurative expression which can refer to a person of any age. So you could be an 80-year-old man with 10 grandchildren and just got saved yesterday. But in the church of God, in the family of God, you are a technion because you have not yet grown in the word of God. So when we're classifying our spiritual growth, if you're a technion, if you're a little children, John says these know the father. The technion are attached to someone else and their relationship is based on trust. But because they're a little child, they haven't yet grasped the spiritual meat of the word. They celebrate their attachment, and they say, yes, I love God, I love Jesus, but they have yet to delight in his will because they haven't yet grasped the spiritual meat. What makes you move from a technion, a little child, to a young man, in Greek, a neoniskos, is meditation. What moves you from a little child to a neoniskos is time, is experience, is actually living it, is actually experiencing it. And what characterizes a young man? John says you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So to go from a little child to a young man, you have now meditated on the word of God. Now that word abides in you. And what's the practical effect? John says you have overcome the evil one. How did the young men do it? Because the word of God, which is the truth, abides in them. 
The primary attack strategy of the devil is what? The lie. So because the truth abides in them, they can very easily recognize the lie and turn away from it. So the type of life that characterizes a neoniskos, a young man, is a person who no longer has a life overwhelmingly characterized by sin. They know sound doctrine and stand on the truth, the rock of God's word. There's almost no wavering between opinions of a neoniskos, a young man. And what is the most mature level of spiritual growth in the family of God? It's the fathers, the paters in Greek. John characterizes the fathers as those who know him who has been from the beginning. Who is John talking about? Him who has been from the beginning is Jesus Christ. For as John writes in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The thing that separates young men from fathers, again, is time and experience. They've lived it. They've been through trials. They've been through tribulations. The word of God not only abides in them, but it's more than words on paper. They have a testimony. They have stories to tell. They can say, I've been through the valley of the shadow of death, and the person who stood by my side was he who was from the beginning, Jesus Christ. For the fathers, the word of God isn't something way out there that's abstract and immaterial. They can give you a real-life experience testimony to back it up. And they, the fathers, have the hupomene. They have the endurance. They have the perseverance that life, living as a Christian, abiding in God's word, enacts in your heart. So they have works. They have experience that has refined their faith. And as in all families, fathers also care for children. They care for the ones who are spiritually immature and under their care. So the key to spiritual growth is the truth of God's word. How do you know that you are growing? You have to find yourself in the family of God. You have to find yourself and see if you identify as a little child as a young man, or as a father. Now before I leave this alone, one thing I want to make clear is that the measure of Christ's glory in your life is not going to be some absolute standard. There's no ultimate bar that we as believers have to hit, and if we don't hit it, our Jesus card is revoked for the next year. There is no absolute standard because when it comes to spiritual growth, the million-dollar question to ask is, which direction are you headed? Where are you going and which way are you following? Our theme verses come from Psalm 1 because this psalm tells us about the way, the path of the righteous, which keeps us oriented as to which path our life is taking. The way, the path of the righteous, is one way where our compass is set on Christ and what characterizes us is the direction that we're headed. So you could have been on the way for 80 years. You could have been on the way for 10 minutes. 
There are going to be seasons on the way where you're leaping like a gazelle. And there are going to be seasons on the way when you get knocked down. And you're on your feet and you're clawing tooth and nail, struggling to move forward. But what characterizes a person being on the way isn't how fast you're moving, isn't how long you've been there. It's the direction that you're headed. And the way is one way, headed only and exclusively towards Jesus Christ. Because the way informs us that the difference between a person who is on the way and who's not on the way is the difference between who you are now versus what you would be. On the way, you are foreknown, you are chosen, you are elect, you are redeemed, you are predestined for glorification. Not on the way, you are predestined for condemnation. Now I'll leave the church with this one parting thought. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, there's the story of Mephibosheth, who was lame, who was crippled, which means he couldn't walk. So figuratively speaking, Mephibosheth could never take steps along the way. But 2 Samuel 9 tells us that King David reached out to this man who was crippled, who was living outside of the kingdom, who was living outside of an inheritance. And David said, in spite of the fact that you are lame, in spite of the fact that you may not be able to walk, you have a seat at my table. And you have a seat at my table for life. Because his lameness wasn't a barrier to receive an inheritance. His broken legs didn't disqualify him from having a seat with royalty. So when we choose Christ, when we choose God, when we choose the way, we have been chosen not to be on the margins, not to live a life where we have a disavowal of our inheritance, but we choose to live and walk in a way where we have a seat at the king's table, where we are his servants and we are his chosen ones. So act now, do not delay. Choose the way and choose Christ. For blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Deeper life, God bless you. Thank you for listening to this sermon by Dr. Sadafa. For more valuable content and resources, please visit WCSK.org.